Republicans on Capitol Hill unanimously vote for Louisiana Representative Mike Johnson for Speaker of the House. Johnson's 51 years old. He opposes abortion rights and same-sex marriage and played a lead role in efforts to overturn the election of Joe Biden. Today is Wednesday, October 25th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The vote puts an end to three weeks of disarray in the House. Also ahead, the urgent need for humanitarian aid in Gaza and insights on the Hamas-Israel war from a longtime U.S. intelligence officer. If you start to look at how did this develop and then how are other players starting to be leveraged and involved, it all tends to point to the Iranians. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. After more than three weeks of Republican gridlock over Speaker of the House, a breakthrough today. The Honorable Mike Johnson of the state of Louisiana, having received a majority of the votes cast, is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives for the 118th Congress. A visibly relieved former Speaker pro tem Patrick McHenry turned over the gavel to Representative Mike Johnson. The deeply conservative congressman from Louisiana was the fourth nominee for Speaker. His election coming out of a long period of intense frustration in Congress since a small hardline GOP faction led the drive to oust Representative Kevin McCarthy from the role of Speaker and effectively brought legislative business to a halt. Disputes over McCarthy's agreement with Democrats to avert a government shutdown started the debacle. A short time ago, Johnson insisted the GOP's come out stronger. We're in the majority right now. We've gone through a little bit of suffering. We've gone through a little bit of character building. And you know what it's produced? More strength, more perseverance, and a lot of hope. NPR Susan Davis notes, uh, or rather has more, on the new speaker. He doesn't have much of a national profile, but within the confines of Republican politics, he has had long-established connections to the socially conservative base, to the evangelical movement. He's been an ally of Donald Trump, and he's also uh, been a friend to more establishment Republicans. NPR Susan Davis. President Biden congratulated the new speaker and promised to work with him, but Biden's re-election campaign panned Johnson as a, quote, loyal foot soldier for former President Donald Trump. Earlier today, Biden addressed the Israel-Hamas war. When this crisis is over, there has to be a vision of what comes next. And in our view, it has to be a two-state solution. It means a concentrated effort for all the parties, Israelis, Palestinians, regional partners, global leaders, to put us on a path toward peace. Biden in a joint news conference with visiting Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. Former President Trump has been asked to take the stand at his fraud trial in New York. NPR's Jimena Bustia reports Trump was questioned by the judge over violating a gag order formally put in place, barring comments regarding any of the judge's staff. Judge Arthur Angoran unexpectedly called Trump up to the witness stand on Wednesday to question the former president on a statement he made earlier in the day. Speaking to reporters outside the courtroom, Trump accused the judge and someone sitting, quote, along alongside him of being partisan. This judge is uh, a very partisan judge, with a person who's very partisan sitting alongside of him, perhaps even much more partisan than he is. And Goran has inferred this to mean his clerk, who sits to his right. Trump's lawyers and Trump himself argued that Trump was referring to Michael Cohen, his former lawyer and fixer who is testifying against him. That's NPR's Jimena Bustillo reporting. You're listening to NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council this afternoon has passed a measure that bans tents from the area around Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the measure now goes to Mayor Michelle Wu for approval. City officials say about 100 people struggling with homelessness and addiction are currently living in the area known as Mass and Cass. The new law would allow city workers to destroy people's tents after offering them shelter. If no shelter space is available on a given day, the tents can stand. Councillor Ruth C. Louisienne supports the measure but says it's not a silver bullet. I don't think that this is going to be what saves us. I don't think that this is ultimately going to be the solution. But can it be part of what's getting us there? I believe so, as long as we are protecting people's First Amendment rights. The American Civil Liberties Union, which has sued the city before, says it will monitor how the ordinance is enforced. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. If Mayor Michelle Wu does give approval, she will detail tomorrow morning when the city might start clearing tents at a press conference tomorrow. Combined Jewish Philanthropies of Greater Boston has set a record for fundraising efforts. The nonprofit said today that it raised $45 million since the launch of the Israel Emergency Fund in the wake of the Hamas attack on Israel. It says the funds came from nearly 5,000 donors. CEO Rabbi Mark Baker says it nearly quadrupled the total amount raised of any of the organization's previous emergency fundraising. All of the expressions of love and support that we are receiving from so many across this community and every single gift to this emergency fund, no matter how large, is a reminder to all of us that we stand together. The money will be used for emergency medical and trauma response and rebuilding infrastructure in Israel. The city of Somerville has announced the winning ideas from its first-ever participatory budget. The city will fund five improvement projects, including new trash cans, bike lane improvements, and the installation of shade structures at public parks. More than 3,000 residents voted on the proposals. The city has allocated about $1 million for the projects. It's been a lovely October day and pretty mild, too. 74 degrees right now. We should have clouds roll in tonight. Temperatures around 57. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Highs in the mid-70s. It's 4.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society. Information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Doctors are operating without anesthesia. Fuel is running out. Food is running out. These are the conditions today in Gaza. Aid trucks are trickling in across the Egyptian border. Those trucks include aid from the UN World Food Program. Cindy McCain is the executive director of that agency. She is just back from the region. And she's here with me now live in the studio. Ambassador McCain, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. That's good to see you. Um, I know that you are in contact with mm-hmm. World Food Program staffers on the ground. You've still got several dozen there, mm-hmm. like 90-something. What are they telling you? What's your current understanding of the situation? Well, it's a complete catastrophe. Uh, we have a, a, a people that are have been moved around that are, are in, you know, they're IDPs within the country. Internally have, displaced persons. Right. On. They have no food. They have no water. They have no fuel. Uh, and what does that mean? That means that they're, go- they're number one, they're starving to death. And number two, there's going to be disease like nobody's business unless we get in there. And the trouble is, as you said, uh, there have been a few trucks that have gotten over the border. That doesn't mean anything. We need hundreds of trucks to get across the border to help mitigate what this catastrophe could mean. Yeah, I was looking. It's, it is a few dozen that have gotten in through the weekend. 
normal crossing would be 400 trucks a day. A day. So right. it's it's a, a mm-hmm. tiny trickle in the right. bucket. Right. I also um to to follow up on fuel on fuel the United Nations is warning that UNRWA the largest humanitarian mm-hmm. provider in Gaza they say they will run out of fuel tonight. So like as we speak yeah. your organization is warning that there's enough food left for about 12 days. Um, and then what? What happens? Um, well, number one, the f- you're correct about the fuel. The fuel's gone. Uh, number two, with regards to our own situation there, the numbers vary from, from place to place and from region to region within the country. Bottom line is there isn't enough food. Bottom line, people are starving to death. And as always, it's women and children that take the brunt of this. We need immediate sustained and safe access to get into that country to help save lives. And we don't have it right now. Uh, We've been given a a truck here, a truck there, which means nothing in the scheme of things. As you said, we need hundreds of trucks to go in. How hopeful are you that the situation will change? Mm, Boy, uh, you know, I'm the eternal optimist in many ways, but, but I'm not hopeful right now. I'm really not from what I'm seeing. Uh, I'm, you know, you know, we're seeing uh, the the political you know wills at bay. We're seeing, of course, uh, people trying to mitigate the circumstances via negotiations, et cetera. But nothing's working. Nothing's happening. Both sides are 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 not talking. And number two, they're not dealing with the issue of people who are going to die. They're going to die, you know, as a result of no food, no water, uh, uh, no no ability to support themselves. And without the opportunity and without given the, the the humanitarian access that we need, we can't do anything about it. And so it just breaks my heart. I lose sleep over this at night. Yeah. Just to make sure I understand the situation, is the food there? Are the supplies there, like, lined up, ready mm-hmm. to go, and you just need somebody to, you know, lift the gates and let them through? Mm-hmm. We have... Uh, Quite a few, and by quite a few, I'm I'm not going to give numbers because it's it varies. But we have uh, way in the high double digits of trucks outside the the, the Rafa gate that could go in immediately. And as you said, uh, in be, prior to the war, they were taking 400 trucks a day over the border in supplies and commodities, et cetera. So, given the opportunity for free and and unfettered access that's safe, yes, we could go in and feed. Uh, a half a million to a million people, depending on where we are and what we were doing. Uh, but we don't have that. And with the food that we have, which is strictly emergency food, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you don't have to cook. You can eat it immediately. We'll give you calories. We'll give you energy, that kind of thing. So who are you calling on to try to change this? Everybody. I was on Capitol Hill today talking to anybody who listened to me about this. But it's Egypt that controls it's that border It's Egypt crossing. right now for, for, where, for where my trucks sit. It's Egypt that is. I mean, I mean, both countries, Israel and Egypt, of course, are, are in this. And, and uh, something has to be done from a, from a diplomatic standpoint. But, but that's, not, you know, that's not my arena. My arena is the humanitarian aspect of this. There are concerns being raised that aid that is intended and clearly Mm -hmm. desperately needed Mm -hmm. by civilians, that that aid could be taken by Hamas. Mm -hmm. Are you concerned about that? Mm -hmm. How do you prevent it? Uh, Not like other people are. And here's why. 
uh, because we have a sizable organization that was on the ground, we have people that are in positions that know the players, that know who the bad guys are, know who the good guys are. Now, with that said, uh, you know, we have the ability to track and trace. We have the ability to, to identify those who are supposed to get the aid by facial recognition, all those kinds of things, eye, eye scans, et cetera. Uh, but, the, the, but the problem is it's a war zone. Yeah. Things are going to happen. And so to say 100%, can I guarantee? No, I can't. Just to broaden this out a little bit, you and I last spoke a little over a month ago, and the reason was that the the WFP has a funding crisis. You mm-hmm. were out of money, you were struggling to provide food aid, and that was yeah. even before this war yeah. between Israel and Hamas. Where does this latest conflict oh, leave you? Gosh. It's, uh, you know, it's it's take, taken a, a critical situation worldwide to something that's near disaster. Uh, as you know, as we talked earlier, uh, we've had to cut aid in many places. We've had to ex- extremely limit aid in others. Uh, we've we've taken millions off the rolls of being able to have regular food. Uh, and, and this was prior to all of this. And now you double down with this kind of situation. And we're in a situation that's dire. Uh, countries are coming to the aid of this particular crisis. Yes, not enough, but they're coming. Uh, and, but still, the rest of the world still at play here. We have the world's on fire. You go from the Sahel to to Chad, go into Sudan, South Sudan, Yemen, Ethiopia, and on and on and on. And there just isn't enough money. There just isn't. In just a few sentences, for people listening who are feeling powerless, <laughs> what can we do? Well, what I tell people, and especially today on Capitol Hill and others, um, we can look at this two ways, and here's what I would suggest. Uh, Number one, you can, with your heart, give money to people who are going to starve to death. Give, Give organizations like mine and others. Or you can do it for national security interests, because this is a national security problem. Cindy McCain, Executive Director of the UN World Food Program, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Tensions are high among Americans leading into the 2024 election. According to a new national survey, 75% of respondents believe the future of the country's democracy is at risk next year. And the survey also found that a growing number of Americans support political violence in an effort to save the United States. That is all according to data collected by the Public Religion Research Institute and the Brookings Institution. NPR's Ashley Lopez is here. And Ashley, I just want to start with that finding the increased support for political violence. Just how common is that view? So the good news is that this is not an overwhelmingly popular position among Americans. Only 23% of people who responded to the survey said they support political violence in some situations. But the bad news is this is a view that is becoming more accepted. And I should point out the level of support for this view is growing like relatively fast. How fast are we talking about here? Well, according to the Public Religion Research Institute, they've been asking Americans in just the past few years whether they agree with this statement, quote, because things have gotten so far off track, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country, end quote. Researchers say they first asked about this statement in March 2021, and at that time, only 15% of respondents said they agreed with it. Cut to just two years later, and researchers say that support has grown to nearly a quarter of Americans, which is a significant jump for such a short amount of time. Right. What do we know, if anything, about what's driving this uptick in support for political violence? 
So it's likely a combination of things. I talked to Robert Jones, who is the CEO and founder of the group that conducted this study, and he thinks two big things have been happening in American politics that are driving this. One is the continued polarization in American politics, right? Like people in one political party are increasingly distrustful of people in a different political party, which just doesn't really help bring down the temperature when there are big divides on issues. And the second thing, Jones says, has to do with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. We had our our first election that we cannot say that there was a peaceful transfer of power in the last election. You know, we had an insurrection on January 6th. So I think we are seeing violence spill over. And I think Americans are kind of feeling the country coming unraveled um, in in a way and and worried that they may have to brace themselves uh, for that. Jones told me he thinks we are in for like a pretty challenging season between now and the presidential election in 2024. What did they find out about who is most likely to hold these views? Yeah, so what we know is that this does fall along party lines in a pretty significant way. Researchers found that one third of Republicans support violence as a means to save the country, compared with 22% of independents and 13% of Democrats. And more specifically, Republicans who have favorable views of Trump were found to be nearly three times as likely as Republicans who have unfavorable views of Trump to support political violence. They also found that Americans who believe that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump were also three times more likely than those who do not believe the big lie to support political violence in an effort to save the country. And Ashley, just big picture here. Do we have a sense of how dire Americans actually think the political situation in this country is? Do a lot of Americans think that the United States needs saving? Yeah, so this is a part of the survey where there was a surprising amount of consensus. So three quarters of the people surveyed say they actually see American democracy at stake in the next election. And 77 percent said in the survey that they believe that the country is going in the wrong direction. And while Republicans and independents are more likely to feel this way, a majority of Democrats also reported concern over the country's direction. That is NPR's Ashley Lopez. Thank you, Ashley. Yeah, thank you. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up in about 20 minutes, how specially trained dogs in police departments can make a difference in traumatic situations when both victims and officers need comfort. That story and much more is still ahead. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stepping Stone, directly supporting Boston students since 1990 and until all have access to earn a college degree. Learn more at steppingstone.org and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. A not-so-good day on Wall Street. The Dow lost three-tenths of a percent. S&P fell nearly one-and-a-half percent. That's its lowest close since June. And the Nasdaq had its worst day since February. It fell nearly two-and-a-half percent. The state attorney general's office says it's reached nearly $7 million settlement with MGM Springfield for wage and other violations. Attorney General Andrea Campbell alleges MGM Springfield failed to pay overtime wages, illegally retained workers' tips, and did not provide paid earned sick time. The complaints date back to 2018, and MGM spokesperson says the company has made proactive updates to its policies since 2019 to address the issues. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital. For expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. 
Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at McLeanHospital.org. A lovely and mild October day today. We should have clouds roll in for tonight. Temperatures pulling back just to about 57. Tomorrow, partly sunny highs in the mid-70s. Still warm on Friday and even sunnier. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at capitalone.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In late August, 14 runners from around the world began circling a single block in Queens. And they wouldn't stop for 52 days. Their goal? Running more than 3,000 miles. This tedious route is said to be the longest foot race in the world, and it ended just last week. Reporter Lauren Vespoli has the story. On a recent Thursday night in Jamaica, Queens, Italian ultra runner Andrea Marcato jogged along the busy Grand Central Parkway. He had less than five miles left in the Sri Chinmoy self-transcendence 3,100 mile race. This is a very simple life. Basically you eat, you run, and you sleep. There is a night break from midnight to 6 a.m. And then we come here again the next day. Trim, bald, and wearing red shorts and a red shirt. Mercado shared his strategy for persevering. The first, uh, the first problem is boredom, you know. You, you must have some tools to keep the mind calm and your emotions under control. Every morning I do meditation and concentration exercises. They help me a lot. Spiritual guru Sri Chinmoy founded this race in Queens in 1997. He saw distance running as a means to transcendence and enlightenment. He died 16 years ago, but he still has thousands of disciples around the world. They include the runners like Marcato and the race volunteers who feed them six times per day or provide medical care, like retired physician Garima Hoffman. It defies anything you ever learn in medical school about physiology, what these runners can do. This year, we're really lucky. Several had really bad shin splints, but they managed to go through it, and now they're running. Kaninika Yanakova a Slovakian runner doing the race for the sixth time, was taking it slow. I'm not really making the miles, but uh, I'm just doing my best, whatever comes. <laughs> the first thousand I ran and then I started walking. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's now over a thousand miles I've been walking. <laughs> On a cool, clear evening, a small crowd had gathered near the balloon arch marking the finish line. A few minutes later, Marcato bounded across the finish line winning the self-transcendence race for the fourth year in a row after 43 days, 13 hours, and 33 minutes. He stood in front of an Italian flag and a portrait of Sri Chinmoy, holding a bouquet of white roses as the crowd serenaded him with songs written by the guru. Winning this race doesn't come with any prize money. But there was a cake with congratulations, Andrea, written in orange frosting. 
Many, many thanks, and uh, don't eat all the cake, otherwise... I can eat. Yeah, leave a, leave a piece more for me, please. I lost almost 26 pounds. Now I should get it back. While they looked forward to long naps and big meals once they finished, many of the other runners said they'll be back next year, ready to attempt another 3,100 miles around the same block in Queens. For NPR News, I'm Lauren Vespoli in Jamaica, Queens. The rules around abortion have shifted dramatically from state to state. That makes it hard for patients to navigate what's legal and where. Consider these numbers. 43 states ban abortion at some point. Two states ban it at six weeks. Another two states at 12 weeks. Four states at 22 weeks. Adding to the confusion, a newly published study in the Annals of Internal Medicine finds it's even difficult to know which hospitals offer this kind of reproductive care. Katie O'Riddle reports. The state of Oregon now has some of the strongest protections for reproductive rights in the country. People seeking an abortion come here from all over. Dr. Alyssa Caldwell is an obstetrician at Oregon Health and Science University. She describes one woman who recently traveled to her clinic from a state with a near total ban. We had a long conversation because we were just talking about how difficult it was for her to figure out the logistics in order to get to Oregon to be able to get the abortion that she needed. The woman had multiple children at home. The pregnancy was threatening her health. Caldwell says it's not just logistical challenges like travel and childcare. Many of her patients struggle with an even more basic question. We have patients that tell us that they've been trying to figure out where they can go for sometimes multiple weeks at a time. That's why Caldwell and her colleagues make it very clear on the hospital's website that they do offer abortion. I think we're pretty proud of it. And we've spent a lot of time just updating it um, so that people are aware. She pulls up the site and reads aloud. The OHSU Center for Women's Health provides abortions in a specialized clinic. We do not require a waiting period to begin care. Not all hospitals take this approach, according to Aaron Schwartz, a doctor and researcher from University of Pennsylvania. He reads from a Florida hospital's website listing the many reproductive services they offer. The Women's Hospital at Jackson Memorial features brand new labor and delivery unit with wireless fetal monitoring. The list includes a half dozen procedures related to pregnancy and childbirth. There is no mention of abortion. Abortion is being treated differently than other health services on these websites. This hospital, Jackson Memorial, is one of the biggest in Florida. A representative said in an email that the hospital does not provide elective abortion. Schwartz points out even that information would be helpful for patients. We specifically looked to see whether websites that didn't say they offered abortion nonetheless provided resources to tell a person where they might go to obtain abortion services. And that was pretty rare in our data. Schwartz and his colleague, Dr. Ari Friedman, also at University of Pennsylvania, got interested in this topic when they were chatting after the Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. They started wondering how patients in states with abortion bans would figure out where to go. This was one of those, uh, you go to lunch with a colleague, and by the end of the lunch, you happen to have a new research idea. <laughs> true. Working on. true, true, true. Their team analyzed more than 200 hospital websites in states where the procedure is legal and found that there was no mention of abortion on nearly 80% of them. 
The researchers didn't look at why hospitals don't like talking about abortion. One possible reason is security. But Friedman says hospitals can offer a lot of anonymity for patients. If you're worried about protests, well, it is a lot harder to boycott every single patient walking into the doors of a hospital, only, you know, one in a thousand of whom might be seeking abortion care than it is to target every single patient walking into a Planned Parenthood. Nonprofits like the group Plan C help patients figure out how to access abortion services. The website offers information for people in every state about abortion pills. Their online traffic has doubled since the Supreme Court decision in June of 2022. Angie Jean-Marie is a spokesperson for Plan C. For us, one of our values is demedicalizing abortion care. Women have been having abortions for hundreds of years, only relatively recently in hospitals. Now, in some countries, Jean-Marie points out, abortion pills are available without a prescription. Her group welcomes partnerships from hospitals, but she says they're figuring out other paths to access. I mean, we certainly have a vision of folks being able to self-manage and self-direct their abortion care. Maybe someday, she says, hospitals won't need to make their services known to those seeking safe abortions because abortion seekers won't need hospitals. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR in about 10 minutes, a veteran CIA chief in the Middle East talks about conflict in the Middle East and the worldwide caution travel advisory for Americans. In sports, Celtics start their regular season tonight on the road. They'll face the New York Knicks at Madison Square Garden. Celtics had the second-best regular season record in the Eastern Conference last year and lost in the Eastern Conference Finals. Tip-off tonight is at 7 o'clock. The Bruins are off until tomorrow. This is WBUR, 74 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, offering an undergraduate summer internship development program that provides first-generation college students with the strategies, skills, and access to networks for success in the investment management industry while instilling a sense of social responsibility. And Welland Montessori School, a five-time winner of Boston Parents' Family Favorite Award, educating toddler to grade 8. Open house November 5th. More at Welland.org. I'm Robin Young. Our series on America's fascination with guns looks at the problem of urban violence. These days, weapons street gangs use are getting deadlier. I've seen a kid running around with a scar H, which is like a military weapon. A snapshot into the world of guns available on the street next time here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, Congressman Mike Johnson was sworn in today as the 56th Speaker of the House After weeks of chaos and three failed tries by his Republican colleagues, the Louisiana representative won with 220 votes. That's three more than what was needed, meaning every Republican in the House voted for Johnson. To my colleagues, I want to thank you all for the trust that you have instilled in me to lead us in this historic and unprecedented moment that we're in. The challenge before us is great, but the time for action is now, and I will not let you down. The 51-year-old Louisiana congressman has represented his hometown of Shreveport since 2016. He's a lawyer and activist for socially conservative Christian causes. 
Johnson helped defend former President Donald Trump in both of his impeachment trials, and he took a leading role in challenging the 2020 election results on Trump's behalf. Mexican authorities are still surveying damage after a massive Category 5 hurricane hit the resort town of Acapulco. Hurricane Otis made landfall this morning. NPR's Ader Peralta has more from Mexico City. President Andrés Manuel López Obrador says they don't yet know if anyone was killed by the storm. Pero no hay comunicación. No sabemos. But he says that they don't know because the internet and phone lines have been cut off. What they know is that roads leading into Acapulco have been washed out and that there has been severe damage to buildings in the city. Meteorologists say Hurricane Otis is the strongest storm to hit the Pacific coast of Mexico since record-keeping began. Hurricane Otis intensified rapidly and delivered a direct hit to Acapulco, a city of one million people. Peter Peralta, NPR News, Mexico City. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Members of Massachusetts' all-Democratic congressional delegation are not pleased with the Republicans' pick for House Speaker. Today, the GOP unanimously elected Louisiana's Mike Johnson as Speaker. Congressman Lori Trahan of Lowell says Johnson has a history of supporting some of his party's most extreme policies, including abortion bans and false claims about election fraud in 2020. Congresswoman Anna Presley of Boston calls Johnson an election denier and a pawn of Donald Trump. The longtime director of Boston's Institute of Contemporary Art is going to be stepping down after more than 25 years on the job. As WBOR's Amelia Mason reports, Jill Medvedow oversaw the ICA's transition from a small presenter of contemporary artwork to a major international player in the contemporary art world. Under Medvedow's leadership, the ICA moved to Boston's Seaport District and opened its iconic building, which is now a local landmark. It was key to our thinking about what it would mean to get people to, you know, to build a sense of attachment. Medvedow also established a permanent collection that kept visitors coming back, with signature works like Cornelia Park's Hanging Fire. These are pieces that people, when they're not on view, people ask frequently, when when are you going to put that up again? Medvedow leaves the ICA with a nearly $60 million endowment. She plans to step down at the end of next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. A new exhibit at Boston's Old North Church examines its role in the American Revolution and its ties to enslavement and colonialism. The exhibit is called Sparking Revolutions, Lanterns, Leadership, and the Evolving Legacy of Old North Church. It opens tonight and is part of the church's 300th anniversary celebration. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Should have cloudy skies tonight, about 57 for a low. The unseasonably warm weather returns for the rest of the week. Tomorrow and Friday should get up to the mid-70s. Partly sunny tomorrow, more sunshine for Friday. Believe it or not, Saturday could come close to 80 degrees. 73 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at Mott.org. 
and from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The other day, the State Department issued a rare alert, a worldwide caution. Now, state puts out alerts for one country or another with some frequency, but this one warns U.S. travelers abroad of, quote, increased tensions in various locations around the world, tensions that raise the potential for terror attacks, demonstrations, or violence against U.S. citizens. This speaks to quite how unsettled a moment we find ourselves in, how many global crises are unfolding at once, even as all eyes are focused on the tragedies unfolding in the Middle East. We wanted to hear how this moment looks to someone with many years' experience in U.S. intelligence. John Franchi is on the line from New York. He's a former CIA chief of station, served throughout the Middle East, 29 years at the agency. John Franchi, welcome. Thanks, Mary Louise. How unusual is it to see this many crises at once? I'm, I'm thinking we've got war in the Middle East, war in Ukraine, an unpredictable Iran, a saber-rattling North Korea with a penchant for testing nuclear-capable missiles, and I'm not even touching the domestic political chaos here in the U.S. Exactly. It, it's just one of the most perilous times I think I've seen over the past 20 years. It's reminiscent somewhat of uh, post 9-11, where we, we had a lot of threats at that time, but even more so because, like you said, we're, we're touching upon Ukraine and how that impacts on us and, again, the domestic scene. Yeah. I mean, looking at this through an intelligence lens, do you see separate threads or would someone with your background be eyeing how all these threads could fuse? And I think that's a good point, because when I started to look at this and you start to see it unfold, you take a step back. I think it's all pointing towards one character, which is the Iranians and their activities in the region. If you start to look at what's happening around what happened in Gaza and where it came from. So if you take a step back from the horrible nature of what happened and you start to look at how did this develop and then how are other players starting to be leveraged and involved, it all tends to point to the Iranians. Hmm. And I guess that would extend to that Iran uh, has been documented to be arming Russia in its war on Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I think there's some loose affiliations if you if you think of China and Russia and their roles in this and supporting it, maybe not actively in the decision making, but being supportive in a moral sense, as well as it it advances their agendas as well. So how worried should we be about the possibility of Iran getting involved in any of this in ways beyond acting behind the scenes? I think at this point, that's where their interests lay. They don't have to be directly involved. They've got enough proxies in the region to be able to do what it is that they want to do. So whether it's Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis in Yemen, the the groups that are in Iraq, as well as in Syria, all of these are levers that they can use at any given moment to be able to kind of shift focus and really test Israel, but also the United States and the West and, and moving forward. I'm thinking of um, something that Richard Haas, the president emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations, wrote this week. He had a piece in the Wall Street Journal, and he wrote, one rule of Middle East history is that things get worse before they get even worse. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's. <laughs> would you agree, and how do you break that rule? Well, 
And they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, right? So I think, how do you break that by consistency? I think that's one of the things we've been lacking, I think, for the U.S. and for the West in the region is a consistent policy to move forward. And I think there's an inherent sense that the U.S. has become weak. And that's why a lot of this is playing out. I think there's a lot of factors as to why this is happening, but that's one of the things where countries feel safer to be able to say, okay, let's test the limits. Let's see if they're actually going to do what they say they're going to do. I want to ask about the consensus that emerged after the Hamas attack on October 7th, that it represented a massive Israeli intelligence failure. Understanding that you do not speak for the agency, that you're retired, that even if you weren't, you couldn't talk to me about it. But does that seem fair? Was this a massive intelligence failure on the part of the Israelis? Well, I think it's hard to lay blame at this point because we don't know. There's going to be a huge investigation, I'm sure, or how this comes out. But I can say this didn't just happen in a vacuum. If you look at maybe, say, the last 18 months where the attention has really been focused on the West Bank, I think all of this has been scripted in a sense by the Iranians where they were able to take attention away from Gaza, put it on the West Bank. They started their own a new group, Lion's Den, which has been attacking settlers for at least a year. And again, taking up a lot of resources and sucking a lot of the oxygen out of the room. Do you believe Hamas expected October 7th, the attack on Israel, to succeed at the scale it did, or did it wildly exceed their expectations? I think they had expectations that it would be. Look, if you think about probably the intelligence they, they had, where they targeted, you know, they've been watching these places for at least 20 years, if not longer. For anybody who lives in the Middle East or has lived in the Middle East, there's a surveillance aspect to society where there's people who their only job is or all they do is they sit on corners and watch. And it wouldn't surprise me if that, you know, fed into the calculus for Hamas to do what it did at the time that it did it. So was it more successful than they thought? You know, you could argue either way. I've seen articles that say that they were surprised. I don't think it really matters because it is what it is. And it's something that they, you know, that they have to deal with and cope with. And the resulting reaction by Israel, which is justified, is going to be pretty severe. To circle back to that State Department, the Global Travel Advisory that I cited at the top, mm-hmm. would it be right to read that as you know, a lot of people around the world are angry at the U.S. right now for policy in the Middle East and elsewhere and looking to target all things American? You can look at it from that perspective. You could look at it from the perspective of people wanting to take advantage of these protests for whatever their causes are. And I think this is a concern that strikes the U.S. as well. You're starting to see these protests being usurped and being infiltrated, so to speak, by groups, anti-Semitic groups, white supremacist groups, groups with similar cause, similar justifications or similar missions or goals as you know, the, the, what they're putting forward. And that's, I think, the concern that's out there is so far these things haven't gotten really violent. The ones in Lebanon got somewhat violent. I believe there's some of the ones overseas, but, you know, will they take that spin and will these tipping points that we're going to be reaching over the coming weeks, days and weeks, will those take these protests to another level? Last thing, I just want to put to you a question that I have been putting in recent days to American diplomats and military officials. Can the U.S. manage all these crises at once? And from an intelligence perspective, can U.S. intelligence manage rising threats in the Middle East and Ukraine and Russia and Iran and China? I could go on all at once. 
No, it can. I mean, the U.S. is the only country, I think, in the world that can do that, that has the skill sets, that has the knowledge base, that has the capacity to absorb that and do that. It's leadership that we need. We need to make sure we have strong leaders that allow us to do that, that can act decisively, make decisions when they're necessary, send messages that are followed up by action. If that doesn't happen, then we're going to fail or we're going to stumble. And that's not good for anybody. John Franchi, CIA officer of 29 years who served in posts throughout the Middle East, speaking with us on the line from New York. John Franchi, thank you. Thank you, Mary Louise. You're listening to All Things Considered. When someone mentions police dogs, it often brings to mind big, scary canines. But some police dogs provide comfort. KUER's Ciara Hewlett met some. The Orem Police Station is just south of Salt Lake City, Utah. It's a small department with a playful new addition. (laughs) This is Hoku. She's three months old. Sit. Yes, good girl. Hoku is a fox red lab with adorable chocolate brown eyes and very curious. Hey, don't eat the mic. Isa Stevens is a victim advocate with the department and Hoku's handler. She's looking forward to how Hoku will help in Orem once she's trained. We've been to a lot of suicides and a lot of times there's young kids involved. And I think bringing a calm, even-tempered dog could help them relax a little bit more. Studies show that a dog's presence really does calm and comfort people after a traumatic event. And that helps them to focus and communicate more openly. The Salt Lake City Police Department has seen this time and time again. Rita is their highly trained and extremely calm black lab. Speak! And the person giving commands is her handler, Carrie Bobo. She's a victim advocate and has worked with Rita for four years. There was a victim who walked into the public safety building here who was Spanish-speaking only. She had a lot of black and blue bruises all over her. So I came down. I do not speak Spanish, but I brought Rita down with her. And she just cried and held Rita while we waited for somebody to come and interpret. And Rita just sat there very calmly. And then when we went to the protective order hearing, Rita jumped right on the bench next to her and just sat there the whole time while she sobbed and her paw sat on her leg the entire time. Rita helps in court if a victim is nervous about giving testimony or being in the same room as the offender. She also goes out on police calls. Washington nonprofit Courthouse Dogs Foundation helps agencies in legal systems nationwide get dogs like Rita. They're called facility dogs. The number they've tracked has grown from four in 2008 to more than 300 this year. Lieutenant Michael Browett is with Reno, Nevada's police department. He's the handler for Winter, a golden lab mix that they've had for a year and a half. Officers frequently bend down to pet her. When they stand up, they just let out this big sigh, you know, just a nice deep breath. Browett says officers see hundreds, if not thousands, of stressful events over the course of their careers. Winter is able to support you as you work through those emotions in such a non-judgmental way. He's also noticed a difference in how he interacts with the community when Winter is with him. Sometimes people can be intimidated by officers, but Winter is very approachable. I don't even know that they see a police officer holding the leash, to be honest. And victims, Browett says, sometimes need physical comfort. 
And of course, it would be really awkward, certainly for a uniformed law enforcement officer, even a victim advocate, to just give a big hug. But Winter is able to bridge that gap. That can make both the victim and the officer more comfortable. <laughs> You're so cute. Hoku, the puppy in training in Orem, Utah, is already making a difference with station employees, Handler Isa Stevens says. People are extra friendly. With Hoku being around, I think it brings a lot of unity and heightens the morale in the police department. You're spoiled. <laughs> you have the best job in the world. For NPR News, I'm Ciara Hewlett in Salt Lake City. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. There's finally a new Speaker of the House. Our report coming up in about 10 minutes. We've reached the mid-70s today. It is now 72 degrees. Should fall to 57 overnight tonight, so milder than it has been. Tomorrow, partly sunny and still warm in the mid-70s. Friday could be mainly sunny again in the mid-70s, but then close to 80 on Sunday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark where you can begin your kitchen project by exploring Sub-Zero and Wolf Appliances. Details about showrooms in Boston and Milford at ClarkLiving.com. Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at VRTX.com. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Celtics start their regular season on the road tonight. They face the New York Knicks at Madison Square Garden. The Celtics had their second-best regular season record in the Eastern Conference last year, but lost the Eastern Conference Finals. Tip-off tonight is at 7 o'clock. This is 90.9 WBUR. Every time a mass shooting occurs in America, the questions begin, who did it and why can't we make it stop? The Gun Machine podcast from WBR explores guns and government. Find the Gun Machine on your podcast app. WBR supporters include MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. Volante Farms in Needham, where it's time to place your Thanksgiving order. Fresh turkeys plus sides and desserts made from scratch in their farm kitchen. VolanteFarms.com. And Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of Black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. The Chinese government is suppressing LGBTQ and feminist groups in the country. Those that leave China rebuild those communities abroad. When there are things people cannot talk about in China, we talk here. That's a space we have overseas. We visit the Chinese language feminist talk show in New York City tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As Russia continues to attack Ukraine and occupy parts of it, Ukrainians are planning for years of war, and they are adapting for that long fight. Schools are the latest change. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kharkiv. <laughs> The grade schoolers bundled in puffy coats hold hands as they walk downstairs to a subway station in Kharkiv, 
Ukraine's second largest city. But the children are not heading to the trains. They bypass the corridor leading to the platforms. Instead, they walk down another corridor where small rooms have recently been built. These rooms are filled with color. I see rainbow posters, cartoon animals, and lots of artwork. There's some drawings, daisies, a sun, some kids flipping through textbooks. These children are in second grade. About 10 of them squeeze into a room the size of a large walk-in closet. Their underground school began last month. Teacher Ludmila Demchenko hugs them as they arrive. She used to teach them online. She says they know they're here because of the war. They even asked me how deep underground the metro station was and why we don't hear air raid sirens. I told them, children, it's very good that we don't hear them because if we do, it's really serious. Some parts of Kharkiv are just 20 miles from the Russian border. And last year, when Russian forces were trying to occupy Kharkiv, more than 160,000 people sheltered in the subway system, including thousands of children. Teacher Olha Garbu says the children remember how that felt, and she sees the stress of this long war on her own young son. There are questions like, Mom, when will there be victory and when will the war end? And now, you see, there are my tears. Garbu starts crying and abruptly gets up so her students won't see her. She returns with red eyes and a big, shaky smile. She tells the children it's time for a break. Her students tell me they love seeing their teacher and each other in person, instead of through a computer screen. I am Maxim. I am seven. I can make so many friends now, Maxim says, and when I raise my hand, the teacher is right there and she sees me. Varya. My name is Varya. Sim. I'm seven. We have fun and there's tasty food, Varya says, and we learn things together. I really like a story we read about honeybees. Andrei. My name is Andrei. Hi, Andrei. Nice to meet you. How old are you, sweetheart? Yeah. I'm seven. I like putting on my uniform and coming here, Andrei says. And then when we dance like snakes, I like to watch my friend because he does it in this really funny way. There are breaks every 35 minutes with happy songs so the children can shake out some energy and clap. There's no playground here, only a square of padding with some toys. School psychologist Olena Kochetova sits in on the classes. During breaks you see them playing and we encourage them to play group games together because they really need to feel each other's company. The vast majority of the 52,000 children who still live in Kharkiv study online. A little over a thousand attend these underground classrooms. Their families volunteer. The mayor of Kharkiv, Ihor Terehov, helped organize these classes. He stops to visit and waves at the second graders in Ludmila Demchenko's classroom. We have to educate our children regardless of what the Russians do. The border is very close and they are firing missiles at us 
that can reach Kharkiv in 40 seconds. Terekhov says Kharkiv is now building an entire school underground, one that will have space for many more students. It's set to open early next year. This doesn't mean that we have to stay underground for the rest of our lives, he says. It just means that we need to face our reality today. The mayor steps into one of the tiny underground classrooms where Kharkiv's children are dancing together to another song, and he decides to join them. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kharkiv. Radio lost a pioneer this week. Dusty Street was a legendary DJ who began her career spinning records in San Francisco in the late 1960s. She went on to work for K-Rock in Los Angeles and, more recently, Sirius XM. She died last Saturday in Eugene, Oregon, at age 77. Street was one of the first women to control the mic on rock radio. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has this appreciation. This is Street on the Rock, and I did just get an album of Death Cult. I thought maybe you'd like to take a listen to this. Dusty Street was all about discovery. She grew up listening to jazz. Later, she discovered the blues, punk, and new wave. She turned listeners on to Duran Duran and Depeche Mode. Billy Idol credited her with being the first American DJ to play White Wedding. Hey, little sister, what have you done? She just really had a knack for discovering new music. Writer and journalist Annie Zaleski has written books about Duran Duran and Lady Gaga. She met Dusty Street about 10 years ago. She was so knowledgeable. You know, if you mention any artist, pretty much, she had a story to tell. Either she knew them or had a factoid for it. So she was so unbelievably smart. Great guitar work from John McGeoch. Uh, John McGeoch also is the guitar player for Susie and the Banshees. Or This is Dusty Street Susie in Sue, 2012 on her podcast, no, The Fly Low Show. Something else she was known for? Championing women artists like Susie Sue. I am the Dusty Street was her real name. She grew up in the Bay Area. Her mother was a journalist. Her father was a labor organizer. She believed passionately in the free-form radio that allowed DJs like her to mix genres and play both popular and unknown artists side by side. She claimed a corporate takeover of K-Rock led to her firing. Annie Zaleski. So having to, you know, potentially conform to specific formats or one style of music uh, was definitely something she always tried to rail against. In addition to her breadth of knowledge and vast musical palette, Dusty Street was also known for her sign-off. And so until I talk to you again, babies, fly low and avoid the radar. I'm going to leave Fly low and avoid the radar. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru. Subaru has donated more than $51 million to support the adoption, rescue, transport, and health of more than 420,000 animals. Learn more at Subaru.com pets. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, 
a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We're so grateful, I'm so grateful and so humbled to have gotten a unanimous vote on the floor by all of my colleagues here. Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson is the new Speaker of the House. The vote ends three weeks of chaos in the lower chamber. It's Wednesday, October 25th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Garo Hagopian. We hear from a nurse and medical coordinator for Doctors Without Borders in Gaza City, where they're on the verge of running out of fuel to power its generators. Some humanitarian aid is getting to the people of Gaza through its border with Egypt, but Gazans need a lot more. The UN estimates at least 100 trucks a day have capacity, at least. As of now, we've managed to get a maximum of 20 trucks a day. Those stories and more is still ahead. It's 5.01, first the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. After three weeks of Republican infighting and three failed nominees, the fourth time was apparently a charm. The House has elected a new speaker. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson was able to secure the votes needed. Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries handing him the gavel. From the great state of Louisiana and the 56th Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, the Honorable Mike Johnson. After winning the speakership, Congressman Mike Johnson thanked Jeffries, adding that he's looking forward to working with him. In his first address to the House, Johnson pledged to get back to work immediately, starting with a resolution to support Israel. We're going to show not only Israel, but the entire world that the barbarism of Hamas is wretched and wrong, and we're going to stand for the good in that conflict. Shortly after Johnson was elected, the Biden campaign released a statement calling the new speaker a, quote, loyal foot soldier for former President Donald Trump. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. French President Emmanuel Macron is in the Middle East trying to find a new approach to the devastating war in Gaza. One of his stops was Amman, Jordan. NPR's Jane Araf has details. The French president came to Amman after meeting the Israeli prime minister in Jerusalem. He said there that France was ready to join an international coalition to fight Hamas. But he also implicitly called for Israel to respect international law. The war against Hamas must be without mercy, but not without rules, Macron said. The killings of thousands of civilians in Israeli airstrikes in Gaza has sparked widespread anger in the Arab world. 
in Amman, Jordan's King Abdullah warned that if the war doesn't end, there would be an explosion in the Middle East as the conflict widened. Jane Araf, NPR News, Amman, Jordan. Disgraced crypto mogul Sam Bankman-Fried plans to testify at his own criminal trial in New York. As NPR's David Gurr explains, he's accused of orchestrating one of the largest financial frauds in history. Sam Bankman-Fried has maintained his innocence since he was arrested less than a year ago in the Bahamas, where FTX was headquartered. And for several months, while he was out on bail, Bankman-Fried made his case in the court of public opinion, in interviews, and on the social media site X, formerly known as Twitter. Now, Bankman-Fried will take the stand, as soon as Thursday. Jurors will hear from him directly. It's a risky move most defendants don't make. Federal prosecutors will have the opportunity to cross-examine him. Bankman-Fried is being tried on seven criminal counts, and if he's convicted, he could spend the rest of his life in prison. David Gura, NPR News. New York. Former President Donald Trump's daily outburst to the media during his ongoing civil fraud trial in New York apparently crossed the line today. Judge today fining Trump $10,000 for violating a limited gag order. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow fell 105 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. The New Hampshire Secretary of State says it's not surprising but still disappointing that President Biden will not be on the state's Democratic primary ballot in January. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, the Biden campaign's decision is the latest round in a feud between New Hampshire and National Democratic Party leaders. The Biden campaign says it would like to participate in the New Hampshire primary, but will abide by rules set by the Democratic National Committee. The DNC put racially diverse South Carolina first on the primary schedule, a move backed by Biden. But New Hampshire law requires the state to go first. And Secretary of State David Scanlon says voters should decide who gets nominated, not party leaders. He says New Hampshire will not give up its first-in-the-nation primary. It's part of our culture. We've been doing it for over 100 years. People in New Hampshire take great pride in it. While Biden won't be on the ballot, New Hampshire Democratic Party leaders predict he'll win the primary as a write-in candidate. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Somerville will fund five new city projects with money from its first-ever participatory budgeting program. The winning ideas include money for food pantries, shade structures at public parks, and bike and bus lane improvements. Somerville budget analyst Megan Huckenpoller says the city whittled down a list of some 900 residents submitted ideas to 20 for voting. And then this past month, we had voting, and we had almost 4,000 votes, which was more than we expected. And Really awesome to see the results come in and see people's excitement, especially those who could see their idea from start to finish. The city has allocated a total of about $1 million for the projects. Boston has a new archaeology lab. Mayor Michelle Wu cut the ribbon on the lab at the city's archival center. The facility includes lab space, more than a million artifacts from ancient and historical sites in Boston, and a research library. The city's archaeology program was founded in 1983 to protect its archaeological resources. In sports, Celtics and Knicks in New York at 7 o'clock, the first regular season game. It'll be cloudy tonight, low 56 degrees. Partly sunny tomorrow, another summer-like day with a high of 75. And cloudy tomorrow night, low 57. We're at 70 now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. 
On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. After more than three weeks of bitter infighting that ground the House of Representatives to a halt, Republicans have elected a Speaker of the House. Therefore, the Honorable Mike Johnson of the state of Louisiana, having received a majority of the votes cast, is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives for the 118th Congress. The House floor erupted in cheers as Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson won unanimous support among Republicans. Johnson's sudden rise even took his wife by surprise. I want to thank my dedicated wife of almost 25 years, Kelly. She's not here. We couldn't get a flight in time. This happened sort of suddenly. It truly was a rush. Johnson was selected as the party's nominee late last night and became speaker just over 14 hours later. All this after it took four tries and dozens of hours of bickering behind closed doors to reach an agreement. And now Republicans must decide if they can rebuild trust. It's a question longtime Congressman Frank Lucas of Oklahoma raised ahead of the vote. If you burn the building down, you have an obligation to build the next one up. We'll see how how great a builders my friends are. Johnson's leadership will be put to the test almost immediately. Congress has to keep the government open and pass aid bills for Ukraine and Israel. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis has been covering this whole saga and joins me now from the Capitol. Hello, Sue. Hey, Juana. So, Sue, Johnson was elected speaker with unanimous Republican support, and that is something that three previous Republican nominees could not do. How do you make it happen? You know, I don't think you can overstate how much exhaustion played a role here. Could Mike Johnson have been elected speaker 20 days ago? Probably not. I don't think anyone would make that case. But Republicans were increasingly desperate to find a candidate they could unite behind. And while Johnson doesn't have a very high national profile within House within the House Republican Conference, he has a lot of connections among key factions. He already had a seat at the leadership table. He has establishment trust. He sits on the Armed Services Committee. He's got trust of the military hawks. He's got strong ties to the evangelical community. So he's got trust among the social conservatives and a warm relationship with Donald Trump. So he has the Trump Trump allies. And I'd say personality, also a factor here. He has a lot of collegial relationships and no known enemies, which is something none of the three previous nominees could say that they also enjoyed. Right. I understand that Johnson addressed the House after he won today. What did he have to say? He tried to bring some levity to the moment. As you noted, he joked about why his wife couldn't make it there. He also was contrite. He said Republicans have to work to prove that they deserve their majority, that action has to start immediately. He acknowledged Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries and said he'd try to find common ground with him. It was also notable to me that he talked about America's role in the world, saying a strong America is good for the entire world, especially considering at this moment where the U.S. is engaged in these conflicts in Ukraine and Israel. He also said his first order of business would be to bring a resolution to the floor affirming U.S. support for Israel, which received applause in the room and is being voted on as we speak. And Sue, I have a lot of questions about the agenda, but there's a big thing that we've got to unpack first. I mean, I used to cover Capitol Hill, and I think I have this question. A lot of our listeners probably do. Just who is Mike Johnson? (laughs) Tell us more about his record, who he is, his background. For for the uninitiated, which is many people, the, the way I describe him is he's very he's a conservative in the mold of Mike Pence, which is someone Americans do know, because like Pence, he's a former conservative broadcaster and his Christian faith has been central to his story and his rise in politics. He also has a similar calm temperament. Pence used to always make this joke. I'm a conservative, but I'm not mad about it. That's sort of Mike Johnson's vibe as well. He's been a longtime friend of conservative Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. He's known her for over 35 years. Prior to Congress, uh, he was a constitutional lawyer. He worked 
worked on behalf of socially conservative Christian causes to oppose abortion rights and gay rights. The Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America Group, which is one of the most uh, influential anti-abortion groups in the country, praised his selection today and said he would be a leader in this uh, in the pro-life movement in this new era. In Congress, he formerly chaired a faction of fiscally conservative members. As I said, he already had a seat at the leadership table in a lower ranking role as vice chair. And I'd also note he's only 51. So by congressional standards, he's also pretty young. Okay, you mentioned that when he addressed the House, he name checked Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries. But do you have a sense, really, can he work with Democrats? What are his relationships like across the aisle? You know, Democrats don't actually seem all that interested in working with him. Uh, They've already been attacking him as MAGA Mike. A lot of Democrats look at that very same record on abortion and gay rights as outside of the mainstream and something they can use against Republicans running in competitive districts next year. Johnson was also one of the 147 Republicans who voted against certifying Joe Biden's 2020 victory. And that was after the Capitol was attacked on January 6th. So there's a baseline level of skepticism and mistrust coming from across the aisle. And big picture here, does anything fundamentally change under a Speaker Johnson compared to former Speaker Kevin McCarthy? No. And, you know, he has all the same headaches and no easy solutions. The motion to vacate that allows one member to force a referendum on the speaker vote, that vote still exists, could still be used against Johnson at some point. And he gets no honeymoon period. There's And there's also a lot of hard feelings among Republicans about how all this played out. So sort of smoothing relations within the party, it's going to be a, a priority. And immediately he's going to have to start negotiating on spending bills, how to avoid a government shutdown, passing aid packages to Israel and Ukraine. And all of these things, Juana, all of them are likely to require some measure of Democratic support to get them signed into law. So how he gets Democrats on board and keeps Republicans united behind him, especially as one of the least experienced speakers in modern times, is going to be the challenge that we're all watching. All right. That is NPR political correspondent Susan Davis. Thank you, Sue. You're welcome. To Gaza now, where a third of medical facilities have already shut down, that's according to the UN. Those still in operation are short on medical supplies and drinking water. And UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, says it is on the verge of running out of fuel to power its generators. Aid trucks are slowly bringing in supplies through the Rafah crossing, but those shipments do not include fuel. Israel has banned fuel shipments to Gaza since the Hamas attack on on October 7th, that killed 1,400 Israelis. They say fuel could be diverted for use by Hamas militants. Well, we're going to hear now from someone with firsthand knowledge of the situation. Mohammed Hawajiri is a nurse at Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, also medical coordinator for Doctors Without Borders there. Mohammed, welcome. And I want to ask, Just, I know you were just at the hospital half an hour before speaking with us. What is the condition there? Thank you very much. Every day we go to Shifa Hospital to support the MH staff there. So it is close to 200 injured people on the floor there. And there's a shortage of the medical staff as well because the Israeli forces forced the Gaza Strip citizens to, to move to the uh, south of Gaza. So before I leave the hospital, it was was a hundred, a hundred patients, hundreds of injured people on the ground. I was looking to some supplies. It was difficult. A lot of injuries, a lot of wounded. So with shrapnel everywhere in the bodies. Actually, this shrapnel word... Shrapnel everywhere in bodies, you said. Go on. Yeah. And burn, burn, burn. You know. You're saying there aren't enough doctors, there aren't enough nurses. Tell there me more about supplies, doctors. medicine, bandages. Do you have them? 
actually we we donate we donated some some, some medical items like that bombing so close to us yeah so we have a shortage of bandages we have a shortage of doses as well we have a shortage of medical lines uh, antibiotic IVs a lot of important important medications or medicine that should be given to the patients. Tell me more about the type of patients, the type of wounds you are seeing and trying to treat. Actually, this war, it's not like the past escalation. This war, the rocket, it, it damaged, damaged the skin. We have deep burns. Even deep burns, shot, uh, yeah. So today I did, we did uh, a dressing for 10 of that patient inside the emergency. The percentage of the total body surface areas in their body is close to 70% burns. And the burns very deep. They need some deprivement inside the operation theaters. I discussed with the medical director of the Shifa Hospital about the operation uh, theater list. He said that there is 650 patients on the waiting list for doing plastic surgery. Like, 650 like, patients on the waiting list for surgery. Yeah, or plastic surgeries, orthopedic surgeries as well. Are you getting any sleep? <laughs> so, you know, we sleep like two, three hours and we come back. So as, as MSF, as MSF also, so they enforce us to leave Gaza. But we are taking the responsibility and the risk to stay with our people and to help them. And we don't care about taking breath. We're just keeping on and provide them medical care. Just last question, because you've been telling me all about the work you're trying to do, the people you're trying to help. Just as we were getting on the line, you were telling me you've had to flee your home because it was attacked early in this war. Um, where are you going home to at night? We are staying like uh, my colleagues who are doctors and nurses in MSF. So we, we stay in our office. So we sleep mm-hmm. with our family. So you're sleeping in the in that MSF, the Doctors Without Borders office. Yeah, in the Doctors Without Borders office. And we have two clinics in Gaza City. So it's not far away from Shifa, so that's why so we come to take rest for an hour and come back again. Mohamed Hawajiri of Doctors Without Borders and French at Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF. He's also a nurse at Al Shifa Hospital. We've been speaking with him from Gaza City. Mohamed, thank you. Be well. Thank you very much. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's Garo Hagopi, and thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, how specially trained dogs in police departments can make a difference in traumatic situations when both victims and officers need comfort.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. A not-so-good day on Wall Street. The Dow lost three-tenths of a percent. The S&P 500 fell nearly one-and-a-half percent. That's its lowest close since June. And the Nasdaq had its worst day since February, losing nearly two-and-a-half percent. In business news, Waltham-based Thermo Fisher Scientific is lowering its annual revenue expectations for a second time this year. The lab equipment maker says its projected revenue has dropped from $45.3 billion to $42.7 billion. The broader biotech sector is also feeling the squeeze. More than 3,000 Massachusetts biotech workers have been laid off since the start of the year. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot partnering with customers to help veterans in the Northeast stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com After seeing news alerts all day, it's hard sometimes to understand the full story. Get the WBUR mobile app and we'll be there with context and perspective live. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. It'll be cloudy overnight, low 56 degrees, partly sunny tomorrow, another summer-like day with a high of 75. Cloudy tomorrow night, low 57. Sunny and 77 on Friday. We could hit 80 with sunshine Saturday. 70 now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A monster Category 5 hurricane has hit the Mexican resort of Acapulco. It came as a surprise to the city of one million people. It intensified from a tropical storm to a top-of-the-scale hurricane in just hours. Roads in and out were destroyed. Phone and Internet service have been cut off. NPR's Ada Peralta is on the line from his base in Mexico City. And Ada? It sounds like a mess. How much damage has this hurricane caused? Yeah, I mean, I I wish we knew more. We don't know a whole lot uh, because, as you mentioned, Internet and phone lines are off. uh, uh, And even the president uh, today said that the government had no way to know the extent of the damage. Um, I did manage to talk to Raimundo Ceja, uh, who was attending a mining conference in Acapulco, and he brought a satellite terminal with him. And he says... They had no idea that things were going to be bad until about 10 p.m. last night. He says the winds picked up suddenly and the hotel he was staying in at the hotel he was staying in. Most of the windows blew out. Some people ran downstairs and took shelter at one of the conference rooms. Others had to ride out the storm in their bathrooms Uh, and the destruction he describes as breathtaking. Uh, No one really had time to prepare properly. So windows weren't boarded up. And he says some of the glass buildings on the bay are destroyed. Let's listen. Hasta este momento nadie tiene red celular ni telefonía. Entonces, eh, a la gente que está preocupada, yo ya no se preocupe. 
And what he's saying is that at this point, no one has cell service or phone service. So family members are, are desperate for news, but he says that they should have hope. He's seen a lot of destruction, but no deaths. Uh, a word of caution, though, he is in the part of Acapulco that has very sturdy buildings. Other parts are not that well built. And there is also a lot of worry about what's happening in the mountainous region right outside of this main drag. And help us understand what may have happened here, because yesterday morning, meteorologists were talking about a tropical storm mm. coming ashore. OK, instead, they got this major hurricane. What happened? Meteorologists are saying that this is a stunning and historic event. Uh, the National Hurricane Center said this was a nightmare scenario. The system went from a tropical storm to a Category 5 hurricane in hours. Uh, just a day ago, the computer models were predicting a weak hurricane, maybe that. Uh, and they just got it wrong. Meteorologists say that the warm waters of the Pacific allowed this storm to explode and to catch everyone by surprise. Uh, this storm is likely to go down as the most powerful hurricane to make landfall in the eastern Pacific. And what's more, Acapulco took a direct hit. Uh, that has never happened before since records have been kept. Hmm. Okay. Um, so it's difficult to get communications in and out. What about just actual help? Has aid been able to make it into the city? Not anything significant. Uh, the government here says that it's not safe to fly in, uh, and many of the roads leading into Acapulco has been, have been washed away by the wind and the rain. Uh, but the president is vowing a robust response, uh, and military vehicles carrying aid are ready to move once the roads are cleared. Uh, but we have not gotten word that that has happened yet. That is NPR's Eder Peralta reporting from his base in Mexico City on a tropical storm that turned into a huge hurricane in just a few hours. Eder, thank you. Thank you, Mary Louise. President Biden gave an update today on the conflict in the Middle East. He says that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu should hold off on a ground offensive in Gaza if there's a chance to get hostages held by Hamas out of the territory. What I have indicated to him is that if that's possible to get these folks out safely, that's what he should do. It's their decision. But I did not demand it. I pointed out to him, if it's real, it should be done. Biden says he's worried about civilian deaths in Gaza, but he also says he is skeptical about the death toll figures coming out of the territory. NPR's Deepa Shivaram was in the Rose Garden for Biden's remarks, and she joins me now. Hi, Deepa. Hey, Juana. So, Deepa, we know that health officials in the Hamas-ruled Gaza Strip have said that more than 6,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces. What did President Biden have to say about this today? Yeah, so this came up because Biden was asked by a reporter about the death toll of Palestinians. And he thought the death toll shows that Israel, and the question was whether he thought the death toll shows that Israel is ignoring his message to minimize civilian deaths in the aftermath of October 7th. And Biden himself questioned those stats. He said he has, quote, no confidence in the numbers that are being cited by the health ministry, essentially saying he doesn't know if they're telling the truth about how many Palestinians have been killed. But Biden didn't say why he doesn't trust those numbers, and he didn't offer any alternative 
live for a more accurate death count. And the thing is, this death toll, the more than 6,000 Palestinians who have been killed, these are the only numbers available. And the United Nations and other aid groups have relied on numbers from the health ministry for years, even during previous conflicts with Israel. Biden did say he's sure innocent people have been killed, and he said that's the price of waging a war. Right. And the president also expressed concern about civilian deaths in the West Bank, which is something that our NPR teams on the ground have been reporting out as well. Tell us more about his concerns there. Right. So there has been increased violence towards Palestinians in the West Bank as well since this war started. The health ministry there says more than 100 Palestinians have been killed. And Biden said he was alarmed by the attacks, which he blamed on, quote, extremist settlers. This was a deal. The deal was made and they're attacking Palestinians in places that they're entitled to be. It has to stop. They have to be held accountable. And Biden said those attacks from Israelis was like pouring gasoline on the fire in this conflict. Mm. President Biden also spent some time looking ahead from what you heard. What does he envision will happen when there's an end to this conflict. Right. So Biden is still saying that a two-state solution is the best path forward. And he said he's talking with leaders in the region. That includes King Abdullah in Jordan, President Abbas of the Palestinian Authority, and the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. And there's been work on economic integration between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Biden said he has no evidence of this, but he said his instincts tell him that the Hamas attack happened because of the progress between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And he said there's no going back to the status quo, back to what things were like on October 6th. He said Israelis and Palestinians equally deserve to live in peace. Any updates, Deepa, from the White House about getting more aid into Gaza or getting civilians out? Yeah, the short answer is no. Biden said there needs to be more aid getting into Gaza, but there aren't really any updates on how those efforts are going. And he also says they're still looking for ways for Palestinian civilians, including the hundreds of U.S. citizens there, to get out of Gaza. NPR's Deepa Shivaram at the White House. Deepa, thank you. Thank you. Among the 2.3 million Palestinians trapped in the Gaza Strip, there are some 1,700 people who hold European and U.S. passports, including a Massachusetts family and their baby. We're trying to stay strong, uh, but we cannot help but feel hopeless and abandoned, given it's been 18 days and uh, yet no concrete help from the State Department to get us out of Gaza. They are sheltering in a single-family home with 40 other people. Many are American citizens. More on that family story tomorrow on Morning Edition. This is NPR News. It's Garo Hagopian coming up in just a few minutes, a conversation with former CIA chief of station in the Mideast about the State Department's worldwide caution travel advisory issued to American citizens. Celtics and Knicks in New York at 7 o'clock, the first regular season game. Cloudy overnight, low 56 degrees. We're at 69 now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. The Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit TCHS.org.
and Music Worcester, presenting Grammy-winning mandolinist, composer, and singer Chris Thiele with the Knights Orchestra at Mechanics Hall, October 27th, musicworcester.org. The Chinese government is suppressing LGBTQ and feminist groups in the country. Those that leave China rebuild those communities abroad. When there are things people cannot talk about in China, we talk here. That's a space we have overseas. We visit the Chinese language feminist talk show in New York City tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Speaking during a press conference this afternoon at the White House, President Biden reiterated U.S. support for Israel in its response to Hamas militant attacks, calling the group cowards for hiding behind Palestinian civilians. Biden is also urging Israel to do everything in its power to protect innocent civilians in the Gaza Strip. I continue to be alarmed about extremist settlers attacking Palestinians in the West Bank, that uh, pouring gasoline on fire is what it's like. This was a deal. The deal was made, and they're attacking Palestinians in places that they're entitled to be. It has to stop. The president says the flow of aid to Gaza needs to increase, and his administration is working with partners to make that happen. Biden also spoke of working toward a two-state solution in the region where both sides can live side by side in safety and peace. In Michigan, a bill headed to Governor Gretchen Whitmer's desk would allow outside parties to help voters get to the polls on Election Day. From Michigan Public Radio, Rick Pluter reports. The bill amends a state law so it would be possible for organizations to hire transportation to give voters free or low-cost rides, including Uber and Lyft, to the polls. The bill was the subject of intense debate in the Michigan Senate before it was sent to the Democratic governor on a party-line vote. She is expected to sign the bill. Democratic lawmaker Jeremy Moss said allowing drivers to give someone a ride to vote could help boost turnout, but won't influence how they'll vote. You're going to go to the poll and make your choice uh, in the the privacy of the voting booth. Republicans argued the bill would allow for organized efforts by either party to use rides to make sure they get the last word before voters are dropped off at the polls. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. Dozens of people gather in the city to show solidarity with the United Auto Workers' strike nationwide. The workers walked off the job last month demanding pay raises and other benefits from the big three automakers. WBUR's Irina Machavariani was at this afternoon's event. Protesters and State Senator Paul Finney gathered outside of the State House to support the workers and demand change locally. When we fight, one day longer! The UAW is urging Massachusetts lawmakers to pass a bill to provide unemployment insurance to striking workers. Brendan Mancia is director of the union for this region. He says workers on strike are making a big financial sacrifice. The biggest reason why workers got on strike is because their employers don't come to the table and bargain fairly and in good faith, which leads to a strike. Lawmakers will review the bill at the next legislative session. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majavadiani. The Worcester DA's office issues a murder warrant. 33-year-old Aaron Pennington is accused of killing his wife, Brienne, in their Gardner home last weekend. Police are searching for Pennington in a wooded area in Gardner where his car was found. He may be armed. 
Somerville is announcing the winning ideas from its first-ever participatory budget. The city will fund five improvement projects, including new trash cans, bike lane improvements, and the installation of shade structures at public parks. More than 3,000 residents voted on proposals. The city has allocated about $1 million for the projects. Medford is getting six new blue bike stations and additional bike parking areas. The city already has eight bike share stations. The new locations will be at the Condon Shell and in the West Medford, Lawrence Estates, and Glenwood. The Tufts University campus will also get two new stations this fall. It's 534. WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handlin Haydn Society, presenting Luke's Leeds Beethoven, with popular guest conductor Václav Lux this weekend, handlinhyden.org. And Circle Furniture, with sustainably sourced sectionals, sofas, ottomans, and more during their annual upholstery event through October, circlefurniture.com. The Celtics start the regular season against the Knicks in New York at 7 p.m. In the forecast, cloudy tonight, low 56 degrees, partly sunny tomorrow, another summer-like day, high of 75, and cloudy tomorrow night, low 57. We're at 69 now, partly cloudy. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Mohassan Sarhan spent much of the last few weeks at the Rafah crossing south of Gaza. Every half an hour, you will have three or four rockets lighting the sky uh, less than one kilometer from where we are. Sarhan is the CEO of the Egyptian Food Bank, one of the largest nonprofits in Egypt. For days now, we've been hearing about truckloads of aid being allowed into Gaza through Rafah. Both Israel and Egypt have controlled what has gotten into Gaza for years. In times of peace, Rafah is a main entry point for supplies. Before this conflict, a minimum of 50 to 68 trucks used to go through that border each and every day. And there was a continuous flow for people, medicine, food, whatever, in and out uh, of the border, just like any crossing between two countries. But since the October 7th Hamas attack against Israel, which killed more than 1,000 people, Israel has set siege on Gaza, keeping shipments of water, fuel, food and medical supplies from entering. This has created a desperate situation inside Gaza, as millions of civilians struggle for basic necessities and hospitals run out of supplies. And at the Rafah crossing, the scene has been dramatic. We had more than 200 trucks parked right at the crossing, in addition to maybe 15 cargo planes. But Israel would not allow the aid in. Truck drivers were sleeping in their trucks. Activists were protesting and bombs kept falling. And this area that Israel was bombarding, it's wasteland. We don't have any interpretation for that, except they were trying to intimidate and frighten the aid workers that were stationed at the border, that if they cross, they will be bombed as well. 
Eventually, 20 trucks were allowed through on Saturday. A few dozen more have been allowed in since. But still, much of the aid is waiting at the crossing. Sarhan, who returned to Cairo two days ago, checks in regularly with his team in Rafah. Now, in the evening of the 25th of October, Israel is still bombing the area around the crossing more intensely uh, than before. Uh, They haven't stopped. They only stopped for a few hours to clear some trucks, and then they start bombing again. When I talked to him earlier today, I started by asking him about what he's hearing from people inside Gaza who are waiting for aid that's so close yet so far. Maybe twice a day I'm calling many authorities in Gaza, and the situation is as of yesterday, that's after aid got in after aid got in. Now we have the health sector is operating at less than 5% of its capacity. Mm. You have people on uh, ventilators, you have people in ICU units, you have children incubators, and you have a fuel that is about to run out. Now, as we are speaking now, they have a few hours left. And Israel is very adamant about not allowing any fuel. If the fuel runs out, all these machines will stop, and this is instant death. As I'm listening to you describe the conditions there and the dire need for aid, I have to imagine that if you are a person who is seeking that aid, it is very difficult to know that it is so close that some of that aid that is waiting to get in can't do so. Are you hearing that concern from people? Yeah, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare for us as aid workers. For example, I'll speak from the experience of the Egyptian food bank. Once we got clearance from the Egyptian authorities that we can go to Rafah, in exactly 30 hours, that's less than two days, we were able to dispatch 41 trucks of aid. And we were not the only ones. So we reached an an, an approximately 4,000 tons of aid that could have brought a very valuable and critical lifeline to those people that are dying and starving. I'll tell you something. Five or six days ago, the hospitals there started doing surgeries without anesthetics. Could you believe that this is happening in the modern world? Because they didn't have enough access to anesthetics. They had to do surgeries without them. It's crazy. This is medieval. This is medieval. You couldn't even start to imagine that this could happen in the modern world. Let me jump in here for a second, because as I'm listening to you describe the dire need there on the ground, the aid that still cannot, there's some aid is getting in, of course, but the aid that can still not get in. Can you just help us understand how severe this need is and how far the aid that is reaching these people can go to actually getting them the food, the medical supplies that they need to continue to endure. So since Sunday now, we've been getting an an average of 20 trucks a day. The UN estimates is at least 100 trucks a day have to pass through, at least, not including the fuel trucks. So as as of now, we've managed to get a maximum of 20 trucks a day and zero fuel trucks. So I'm hearing you say there that what's getting in right now, that is just a drop in the bucket to what is needed. Am I hearing that right? It's a drop in an ocean. It's not a drop in a bucket. It's a tiny drop in an ocean of death. It's sad. It's sad. Are you concerned that if a ground invasion begins, there will no longer be any aid at all that is allowed in through Rafa Crossing because it could be too dangerous to do so? I don't believe that would be a concern. Aid will still go through. I believe Israel is mostly concerned uh, with the northern part. So probably we'll continue moving aid into the south and using aid as a bait to lure people from the north to the south. And I think that's very evil. And it defies the, the entire concept of aid, that aid should serve the people that needs it. So we're just sitting and watching and we know exactly what's happening. That's Mohassan Sarhan. He is the CEO of the Egyptian Food Bank. Thank you. Thank you. 
Most Americans think climate change will kill and displace large numbers of people in the U.S. in the next 30 years. That's according to a new survey by the Pew Research Center. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports those fears are backed up by science. Pew surveyed nearly 9,000 adults across the country and found the majority of Americans say climate change is already harming people and expect it to get worse in the future. Alec Tyson helped lead the survey. 61% say they think heat waves will cause large numbers of people to die in the U.S. every year. And 58% think uh, rising sea levels will force large numbers of people in the U.S. to move away from the coast. So these attitudes paint a picture of majorities of Americans see some fairly severe That's exactly what climate scientists warn will happen. Sea level rise is accelerating and deadly heat waves are only getting more common. But despite overall public concern, people seem less worried about how climate change will affect their own communities. So when we ask folks about their own community, 41 percent think climate change will make their area a worse place to live over the next 30 years. But just as many, 41 percent, say that they don't think it'll make much difference. So it's clear to Americans that climate change poses a serious threat to the U.S., but that threat doesn't necessarily feel local and immediate, the results suggest. That trend also showed up in responses about which parts of the U.S. are most at risk from climate change. Most Americans say the Southwest, Southern California, and coastal Florida will all be worse places to live in 30 years. But those are some of the fastest-growing parts of the country. The survey also asked people how they feel when they think about climate change. One of the most widely held sentiments is feeling sad about what's happening to the earth. Seventy percent say this. Americans also feel anxious and frustrated about the lack of political agreement. About half of Americans say they feel motivated to address climate change. But while the majority think individual Americans have some role to play in tackling global warming, most of those surveyed said that the energy industry and other large businesses have a lot of power in that arena, says Tyson. The energy industry and large businesses and corporations, that they can do a lot to reduce the effects of climate change. About half of Americans think that the federal government can do a lot to address climate change as well. But only a quarter think that the U.S. and other countries will do enough. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In many neighborhoods, homes are hugged by greenery, but experts say in some areas that greenery can increase a home's wildfire risk. Officials in California are drafting rules that would strictly limit landscaping within five feet of a home in high-risk areas. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk saw a demonstration of why that zone is so important. Even in a wildfire, most fires start small. We've got spot fires here. See that beautiful um, circle of spot fire? Two buildings in Sacramento, California, side by side, are being set on fire. It's a demonstration being led by Ann Cope of the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. It's a nonprofit that studies what makes buildings vulnerable. The buildings are surrounded by bark mulch, and that's where firefighters started the flames. And this one is lit. This is how many houses burn in a wildfire. Embers blown ahead of the fire get caught in mulch or plants. Around one building, that mulch fire spreads to the shrubs. All of this vegetation is healthy and green, and you can see that one in the corner there. Look how quickly it's flaming, the one right in front of the window. From there, the fire goes up the building wall, eventually consuming the whole thing. There goes the window. 
see the pieces have melted. But next door, the other structure is fine because between the house and the bark mulch is a stone walkway. The fire stopped when it hit that hardscaped barrier. This zone within five feet of a house is key, Cope says, and it's what needs to change. We need to take our beautiful landscaping and our flowers that we enjoy so much as humans, and we need to move that away from the house where we can see it from the window and still enjoy our gardens, just not right up next to the structure. Walkways, gravel, or patios should be right next to the house instead, she says. It's a big shift from how homes are designed today. Wildfire adaptation is going to take a different aesthetic. Wildfires have taken a massive toll in California in recent years. Tens of thousands of homes have been lost. Human-caused climate change is expected to keep making fires more intense. That led to California passing a new law, limiting the vegetation from zero to five feet from a home, only in areas that are prone to wildfires. The state is drafting that regulation now, and when it goes into effect, it'll be the first statewide rule of its kind in the country. Emotionally, this is a huge change for people. Frank Bigelow helps oversee California's defensible space program at CAL FIRE, the state's firefighting agency. Many homes already get inspections for the vegetation within 100 feet. Existing rules require clearing out dead brush and cutting back trees in that zone. Bigelow says about 80% of people comply. We expect that number to go down tremendously when we implement the zero to five because most of those people who are compliant now won't be compliant in the new part. Bigelow says it'll take a lot of education to help Californians comply with the new five-foot rules, even at his own parents' house. When I told them, out in the front yard where you have the mulch and you have that little tree right out in front of the window, all of that's going to have to come out. And my dad said, the heck it is. We paid a lot of money to have that landscaping done. I'm not moving that. The tension over these rules has led to a delay. They were supposed to be ready last January. Now it'll be 2025 at the earliest. Regulators are still debating whether allowing certain kinds of plants is safe, like green grass or mature trees without branches touching the house. State firefighters are hoping that Californians will be open to rethinking their yards, with climate change driving wildfires to become even more destructive. Lauren Summer, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Garo Hagopian. Coming up in just a few minutes on 90.9 WBUR, the new Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, doesn't shy away from the harsh realities of the Osage murders it depicts, but it also celebrates Osage culture. More coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo in Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at LaCuchara.com. And Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at SolarGardensMA.com. In sports, it's the Celtics and Knicks in New York at 7 o'clock, the first regular season game. And it'll be cloudy tonight, low 56 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny, another summer-like day, high of 75. Tomorrow night, cloudy, low 57. Sunny, 77 on Friday. We could see 80 with sunshine on Saturday. Right now, 67 in Boston. This is WBUR. It's election season in Boston. And if you're wondering, wait, 
who are we voting for or how do I register to vote, we've got you covered. Here's another tip from our field guide to Boston. Boston has 13 city councilors and their terms are up every two years. The council does things like approve the mayor's budget, hold hearings on hot button issues, and send local laws to the mayor's desk. You can register to vote online, by mail, in person, or even when you apply for your driver's license. And the options don't stop there. To cast your ballot, you could vote by mail, drop your ballot in a drop box, vote early, or head to the polls on election day, November 7th. To get more tips like this about navigating elections and local politics in Boston, head to wbur.org slash fieldguide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In Iceland, women and non-binary people are back to work today. This after tens of thousands of people walked off the job in a one-day strike to protest gender inequality. The strikers refused to do any work, including household errands and childcare. Even Prime Minister Katrin Jakobsdotter joined yesterday's protest. We're joined now by Freya Stangrumsdotter. She's communications director for the Icelandic Federation of Public Workers, which is a union that helped organize the strike. Welcome. Thank you. So as we mentioned, thousands of people across the country of Iceland, including presumably yourself, were on strike yesterday. So can we just start by asking, what did that day look like for you? (laughs) Well, I was probably one of the few women in Iceland not on strike, as I was one of the organizers of the event. But already in the morning, driving to work, you could uh, see a noticeable difference in traffic. The only people driving were men. You could see men with strollers and stores were closed. Services were very limited. And with the kind of highlight being in Reykjavik, where the police report that it was probably around 100,000 women and non-binary individuals showing up to show their support. And that's actually a quarter of the population in Iceland. Mm. So what was the message that you and the other organizers hope to send with this one-day strike? Well, the slogan of the event is, you call this equality. And that refers to uh, Iceland being the number one on a lot of indexes. When it comes to gender equality, we sometimes get the uh, message that we should just be grateful and, and just wait patiently for the rest to follow. But we're not waiting. These indexes, they, for example, don't take into account gender-based and sexual violence, which studies show here is that almost 40% of women of Iceland experience sexual or gender-based violence in their lifetimes. And that's not something a, a number one country in, in gender equality should actually be proud of. Another theme was, of course, the wage gap between men and women, which is primarily because of the undervaluing of women's work with healthcare jobs, childcare jobs, cleaning jobs, and so on being some of the lowest paid in society, where women are, of course, very dominant. And then there's all the unpaid labor we do. I want to talk about that unpaid labor for a second and just in very direct terms. In my house, that would include me not doing the laundry, sweeping or vacuuming, managing our very complicated childcare schedule, figuring out what my family is <laughs> going to have for dinner. And that is all work that I and lots of other people across the world do without compensation every single day. Yeah. Why was it important to focus on that unpaid labor as well as paid labor of women and non-binary people? Well, you know, as you say, uh, 
it's a lot of work. And there was a Norwegian study recently that showed that uh, Norwegian women, they are working approximately two more months per year than men, if you take into account all the unpaid labor. And uh, due to women doing so much unpaid labor, they are more likely to have part-time jobs, which also affects their earning, which perpetuates the wage gap and so on. It has been almost 50 years since Iceland's first full-day strike for gender equality. And I want to ask you to pitch forward a bit with me here. If you had to guess, Mm -hmm. do you think that 50 years from now, if I were to pick up the phone and call you again, that you and I would be having the same conversation? I mean, I I hope not. I hope we will uh, not have to do a full-day strike again in 50 years. I hope I will not be an old lady at the strike uh, with a sign standing there with my daughter and grandkids. (laughs) I mean, our prime minister has uh, said in Icelandic media that uh, she thinks it's that she would pull to get uh, to full gender equality within the decade. That's what we're going to fight for. That was Freya Stangrumsdotter. She's the communications director for the Icelandic Federation of Public Workers. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Until recently, Native representation in cinema and television has been abysmal. That is slowly changing. The new Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, does not shy away from the harsh realities of the Osage murders it depicts. But it also does something else. It celebrates Osage culture. KOSU's Allison Herrera spoke with some of the people who worked on the movie on and off screen. There's a scene in the movie where Osage men and women are lined up outside the train station getting their photo taken. You can see it in the film's trailer. When this money started coming, we should have known it came with something else. They're on their way to Washington, D.C. to demand the federal government solve the murders taking place on their land. Osage citizen and lead wardrobe consultant Julie O'Keefe said the Osage delegation wore what she considered to be a power suit. It was, you know, a group, 40 of them, and they come walking in with these blankets. Broad cloth blankets with bright hand-sewn ribbon work. The clothing has a specific message. We're coming as equals. And we're coming in here to let you know that we're here to talk business with you. When the film premiered at Cannes earlier this year, she and numerous other citizens of the Osage Nation wore that same power suit on the red carpet. Hiring O'Keefe was just one of the ways director Martin Scorsese made sure there was authenticity in the film. But Osage News editor Shannon Shaw Duty said it didn't start out that way. I started hearing leaks about... This script is, this is crazy, it's totally Hollywood. We're gonna look like fools. Members of the Grey Horse community within the Osage Nation asked for a meeting with Scorsese and his crew. That's when things changed. Scorsese made sure to shake everyone's hand and... He intently listened to everyone stand up and speak their truth, their concerns, and then at the end, He gave some remarks to us and was just so down to earth. Chad Renfro was the consulting producer and ambassador for the Osage Nation on the film. He and Principal Chief Jeffrey Standing Bear put together a list of people for Apple original films to work with. Language and cultural consultants, Osage cooks, and wardrobe consultant Julie O'Keefe. The movie was going to be made with or without us. And instead of making it without us, they made it with us in such a huge huge way. Hundreds of Osages worked as extras and behind the scenes. 
O'Keefe tapped into Osage aunties and grandmas who have prized collections of ribbon work, finger weaving, and blankets. She put an ad in the local paper asking Osage women to show off their heirlooms to the wardrobe crew. And they're bringing out items from that 1920s period or earlier, like some of the fabrics and everything and the textiles that were used. And, you know, ribbon, the colors, those colors don't exist anymore. And this is what took an epic movie like this and brought it down into a feeling of a community project. Again, Chad Renfro. Of course, we were suspicious and, and anxious about having this being told in such a large platform. But every step of the way, these people upheld our trust. Trust is not always upheld when Hollywood tells stories about Indigenous communities. But Osages who worked on this film say their experience is a model for moving forward. For NPR News in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I'm Allison Herrera. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen, streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Spalding Rehabilitation. For expert care, turn to Spalding with three inpatient hospitals, a skilled nursing facility, and outpatient centers across Eastern Mass., Spalding is a world leader in advanced rehab treatment and research. U.S. News ranks Spalding number two for rehab care in the country. SpaldingRehab.org. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A new poll offers a snapshot of where we stand on violence fueled by elections heading into 2024. A quarter of the country agrees with that statement. That's up from 15% just two years ago. It's Wednesday, October 25th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Garo Hagopian. Also this hour, a conversation with the executive director of the World Food Program, Cindy McCain, about the urgency of the humanitarian need in Gaza. And what's thought to be the world's longest road race happens each year in New York, where runners go around and around the same block for a distance of more than 3,000 miles. At 6.30, it's Marketplace checking in with home builders to see what a slowdown in home buying means for them as mortgage rates near 8%. It's 6.01. First, this news.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. After a three-week leadership vacuum in the House, the fourth time was a charm. On a strictly party-line vote, far-right Republican Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana has been elected the new Speaker of the House. Johnson was among those who objected to certifying the 2020 Electoral College election results. He called for unity. We want our allies around the world to know that this body of lawmakers is reporting again to our duty stations. Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The People's House is back in business. Johnson replaces the ousted Kevin McCarthy, picking up a nod from former President Donald Trump in his efforts to take the Speaker's gavel. House reconvened after the vote to consider a resolution in support of Israel in the war against Hamas. The U.K. Prime Minister is calling for a pause to attacks on Gaza, but not a ceasefire. NPR's Lauren Frey reports from London. U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says he supports a humanitarian pause to allow for the safe delivery of aid to civilians in Gaza. He told Parliament... And there has to be a safer environment, which of course necessitates specific pauses as distinct from a ceasefire. Sunak says representatives of his government have been discussing this at the United Nations. The U.S. has also been pushing for short breaks in the fighting between Israel and Hamas. Russia, on the other hand, has called for a full ceasefire. Sunak's spokesperson told reporters here that that would only benefit Hamas. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, London. Hurricane Otis has hit the Pacific coast of Mexico as a punishing Category 5 storm. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports abnormally warm ocean waters helped it intensify. Otis formed over very warm water in the Pacific. Sea surface temperatures off Mexico's coast were in the low to mid-80s. That's abnormally warm. In fact, as a whole, the Earth's oceans are experiencing record-breaking heat this year due to a combination of human-caused climate change and the cyclic climate pattern El Nino. The heat from the ocean water helped Hurricane Otis get large and powerful, and that intensification happened extremely quickly. The storm's top wind speed increased by more than 100 miles an hour over the course of just one day before it made landfall. High winds can tear roofs off buildings and uproot trees and also push a dangerous wall of water on shore. Climate change is causing hurricanes to get more dangerous worldwide. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Even as United Auto Workers Union has been widening its strike against the Detroit Big Three, it appears to be moving closer to a deal with one company, Ford. That would be a critical step toward ending the now six-week-old walkout. The latest proposal reportedly call for a 25% general wage hike over four years. On Wall Street, stocks lost ground today. The Dow fell 105 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. The city council passes a measure banning tents from the area around Mass Ave and Malnia Cass Boulevard. It now goes to Mayor Michelle Wu for approval. WBUR's Walter Wuthman with more. City officials say about 100 people struggling with homelessness and addiction are currently living in the area known as Mass and Cass. The new law would allow city workers to destroy people's tents after offering them shelter. If no shelter space is available on a given day, the tents can stand. Councillor Ruth C. Louisienne supports the measure but says it's not a silver bullet. I don't think that this is going to be what saves us. I don't think that this is ultimately going to be the solution. But can it be part of what's getting us there? I believe so, as long as we are protecting people's First Amendment rights. The American Civil Liberties Union, which has sued the city before, says it will monitor how the ordinance is enforced. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Mayor Michelle Wu will give more information on where, when the city might start clearing tents at a press conference tomorrow morning. Members of the state's all-Democratic congressional delegation say they aren't pleased with the GOP's pick for House Speaker. Republicans unanimously elected Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Congresswoman Lori Trahan says Johnson has a history of supporting some of his party's most extreme policies, like abortion bans and false claims about election fraud in 2020. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley calls Johnson an election denier and a pawn of Donald Trump. The longtime director of Boston's Institute of Contemporary Art will be stepping down after more than 25 years on the job. As WBUR's Amelia Mason reports, Jill Medvedow oversaw the ICA's transition from a small presenter of contemporary artwork to a major international player in the contemporary art world. Under Medvedow's leadership, the ICA moved to Boston's Seaport District and opened its iconic building, which is now a local landmark. It was key to our thinking about what it would mean to get people to, you know, to build a sense of attachment. Medvedow also established a permanent collection that kept visitors coming back, with signature works like Cornelia Park's Hanging Fire. These are pieces that people, when they're not on view, people ask frequently, when when are you going to put that up again? Medvedow leaves the ICA with a nearly $60 million endowment. She plans to step down at the end of next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. Combined Jewish Philanthropies of Greater Boston has raised $45 million since war broke out between Israel and Hamas earlier this month. The organization says the money for the Israel Emergency Fund came from nearly 5,000 donors. Combined Jewish Philanthropy says the amount raised is nearly four times as much raised from any of its previous emergency funds. The money is being used to provide Israel with emergency medical and trauma response and to rebuild infrastructure. Celtics and Knicks in New York at 7 o'clock for the first regular season game. Cloudy overnight, low 56 degrees, partly sunny tomorrow, a summer-like day, high of 75. And cloudy tomorrow night, low 57. We're at 69, partly cloudy. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Doctors are operating without anesthesia. Fuel is running out. Food is running out. These are the conditions today in Gaza. Aid trucks are trickling in across the Egyptian border. Those trucks include aid from the UN World Food Program. Cindy McCain is the executive director of that agency. She is just back from the region, and she's here with me now live in the studio. Ambassador McCain, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. That's good to see you. Um, I know that you are in contact with mm-hmm. World Food Program staffers on the ground. You've still got several dozen there, mm-hmm. like 90-something. What are they telling you? What's your current understanding of the situation? Well, it's a complete catastrophe. Uh, we have a, a, a people that are have been moved around that are, are in, you know, they're IDPs within the country. Internally have, displaced persons. Right. On. They have no food. They have no water. They have no fuel. Uh, and what does that mean? That means that they're, go- they're number one, they're starving to death. And number two, there's going to be disease like nobody's business unless we get in there. And the trouble is, as you said, uh, there have been a few trucks that have gotten over the border. That doesn't mean anything. We need hundreds of trucks to get across the border to help mitigate what this catastrophe could mean. Yeah, I was looking. It's, it is a few dozen that have gotten in through the weekend. 
normal crossing would be 400 trucks a day. A day. So right. it's it's a, a mm-hmm. tiny trickle in the right. bucket. Right. I also um just to follow up on fuel on fuel the United Nations is warning that UNRWA the largest humanitarian mm-hmm. provider in Gaza they say they will run out of fuel tonight. So like as we speak yeah. your organization is warning that there's enough food left for about 12 days. Um, and then what? What happens? Um, well, number one, the f- you're correct about the fuel. The fuel's gone. Uh, number two, with regards to our own situation there, the numbers vary from, from place to place and from region to region within the country. Bottom line is there isn't enough food. Bottom line, people are starving to death. And as always, it's women and children that take the brunt of this. We need immediate sustained and safe access to get into that country to help save lives. And we don't have it right now. Uh, We've been given a a truck here, a truck there, which means nothing in the scheme of things. As you said, we need hundreds of trucks to go in. How hopeful are you that the situation will change? Mm, Boy, uh, you know, I'm the eternal optimist in many ways, but, but I'm not hopeful right now. I'm really not from what I'm seeing. Uh, I'm, you know, you know, we're seeing, uh, the the political you know wills at bay. We're seeing, of course, uh, people trying to mitigate the circumstances via negotiations, et cetera. But nothing's working. Nothing's happening. Both sides are 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 not talking. And number two, they're not dealing with the issue of people who are going to die. They're going to die, you know, as a result of no food, no water, uh, uh, no no ability to support themselves. And without the opportunity and without given the, the the humanitarian access that we need, we can't do anything about it. And so it just breaks my heart. I lose sleep over this at night. Yeah. Just to make sure I understand the situation, is the food there? Are the supplies there, like, lined up, ready mm-hmm. to go, and you just need somebody to, you know, lift the gates and let them through? Mm-hmm. We have... Uh, quite a few and by quite a few I'm I'm not going to give numbers because it's it varies but we have uh, way in the high double digits of trucks outside the the, the Rafa gate that could go in immediately and as you said uh, in be prior to the war they were taking 400 trucks a day over the border in supplies and commodities etc so given the opportunity for free and, and unfettered access that's safe yes we could go in and feed uh, a half a million to a million people depending on where we are and what we were doing uh, but we don't have that and with the food that we have which is strictly emergency food. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you don't have to cook. You can eat it immediately. We'll give you calories. We'll give you energy, that kind of thing. So who are you calling on to try to change this? Everybody. I was on Capitol Hill today talking to anybody who'd listened to me about this. But it's Egypt that controls it's that border It's Egypt crossing. right now for, for, where, for where my trucks sit. It's Egypt that is. I mean, I mean, both countries, Israel and Egypt, of course, are, are in this. And and uh, something has to be done from a, from a diplomatic standpoint, but but that's not you know that's not my arena. My arena is the humanitarian aspect of this. There are concerns being raised that aid that is intended and clearly mm-hmm. desperately needed mm-hmm. by civilians that that aid could be taken by Hamas. Mm-hmm. Are you concerned about that? Mm-hmm. How do you prevent it? Uh, not like other people are, and here's why. 
uh, because we have a sizable organization that was on the ground, we have people that are in positions that know the players, that know who the bad guys are, know who the good guys are. Now, with that said, uh, you know, we have the ability to track and trace. We have the ability to, to identify those who are supposed to get the aid by facial recognition, all those kinds of things, eye, eye scans, et cetera. Uh, but, the, the, but the problem is it's a war zone. Yeah. Things are going to happen. And so to say 100%, can I guarantee? No, I can't. Just to broaden this out a little bit, you and I last spoke a little over a month ago, and the reason was that the the WFP has a funding crisis. You mm-hmm. were out of money, you were struggling to provide food aid, and that <laughs> yeah. was even before this war yeah. between Israel and Hamas. Where does this latest conflict oh, leave you? Gosh. It's, uh, you know, it's it's take, taken a, a critical situation worldwide to something that's near disaster. Uh, as you know, as we talked earlier, uh, we've had to cut aid in many places. We've had to ex- extremely limit aid in others. Uh, we've we've taken millions off the rolls of being able to have regular food. Uh, and, and this was prior to all of this, and now you double down with this kind of situation. And we're in a situation that's dire. Uh, countries are coming to the aid of this particular crisis. Yes, not enough, but they're coming. Uh, and, but still, the rest of the world still at play here. We have the world's on fire. You go from the Sahel to to Chad, go into Sudan, South Sudan, Yemen, Ethiopia, and on and on and on. And there just isn't enough money. There just isn't. In just a few sentences, for people listening who are feeling powerless, <laughs> what can we do? Well, what I tell people, and especially today on Capitol Hill and others, um, we can look at this two ways, and here's what I would suggest. Uh, Number one, you can, with your heart, give money to people who are going to starve to death. Give, Give organizations like mine and others. Or you can do it for national security interests, because this is a national security problem. Cindy McCain, Executive Director of the UN World Food Program, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Tensions are high among Americans leading into the 2024 election. According to a new national survey, 75% of respondents believe the future of the country's democracy is at risk next year. And the survey also found that a growing number of Americans support political violence in an effort to save the United States. That is all according to data collected by the Public Religion Research Institute and the Brookings Institution. NPR's Ashley Lopez is here. And Ashley, I just want to start with that finding the increased support for political violence. Just how common is that view? So the good news is that this is not an overwhelmingly popular position among Americans. Only 23% of people who responded to the survey said they support political violence in some situations. But the bad news is this is a view that is becoming more accepted. And I should point out the level of support for this view is growing like relatively fast. How fast are we talking about here? Well, according to the Public Religion Research Institute, they've been asking Americans in just the past few years whether they agree with this statement, quote, because things have gotten so far off track, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country, end quote. Researchers say they first asked about this statement in March 2021, and at that time, only 15 percent of respondents said they agreed with it. Cut to just two years later, and researchers say that support has grown to nearly a quarter of Americans, which is a significant jump for such a short amount of time. Right. What do we know, if anything, about what's driving this uptick in support for political violence? 
So it's likely a combination of things. I talked to Robert Jones, who is the CEO and founder of the group that conducted this study, and he thinks two big things have been happening in American politics that are driving this. One is the continued polarization in American politics, right? Like people in one political party are increasingly distrustful of people in a different political party, which just doesn't really help bring down the temperature when there are big divides on issues. And the second thing, Jones says, has to do with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. We had our, our first election that we cannot say that there was a peaceful transfer of power in the last election. You know, we had an insurrection on January 6th. So I think we are seeing violence spill over. And I think Americans are kind of feeling the country coming unraveled um, in, in a way and, and worried that they may have to brace themselves uh, for that. Jones told me he thinks we are in for like a pretty challenging season between now and the presidential election in 2024. What did they find out about who is most likely to hold these views? Yeah, so what we know is that this does fall along party lines in a pretty significant way. Researchers found that one third of Republicans support violence as a means to save the country compared with 22% of independents and 13% of Democrats. And more specifically, Republicans who have favorable views of Trump were found to be nearly three times as likely as Republicans who have unfavorable views of Trump to support political violence. They also found that Americans who believe that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump were also three times more likely than those who do not believe the big lie to support political violence in an effort to save the country. And Ashley, just big picture here, do we have a sense of how dire Americans actually think the political situation in this country is? Do a lot of Americans think that the United States needs saving? Yeah, so this is a part of the survey where there was a surprising amount of consensus. So three quarters of the people surveyed say they actually see American democracy at stake in the next election. And 77% said in the survey that they believe that the country is going in the wrong direction. And while Republicans and independents are more likely to feel this way, a majority of Democrats also reported concern over the country's direction. That is NPR's Ashley Lopez. Thank you, Ashley. Yeah, thank you. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's Garo Hagopian. Thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next, we'll check in with WBUR's Deborah Becker for the latest on a Massachusetts family stuck in Gaza. On Wall Street, the Dow lost three-tenths of a percent. The S&P 500 fell nearly one and a half percent. That's the lowest since uh, June. And the Nasdaq had its worst day since February, down nearly two and a half percent. In business news, the state attorney general's office says it's reached a nearly $7 million settlement with MGM Springfield for wage violations, among other things. The casino is accused of failing to pay overtime, illegally keeping workers' tips, and not providing paid earned sick time. The complaints date back to 2018. MGM Springfield says it's made proactive updates to its policies to address the issues. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. 
Stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets. Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org newsletters. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, where interior designers can help you rethink your living room or family room during their annual upholstery event through October. CircleFurniture.com. As Israeli military action intensifies in Gaza, a Massachusetts family that's been stuck there says they're trying to remain hopeful that they'll be able to get out safely. WBUR's Deborah Becker has been in touch with the family since shortly after the fighting began more than two weeks ago and joins us now to talk about this. Hi, Deb. Hi, Garo. What's the latest from this family from Medway? Well, Abud Okal and his wife, Wafa Abu Zayda, and their one-year-old son, Yusuf, are Palestinian-Americans. And they were visiting family in Gaza when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, and Gaza was subsequently closed off. Right now, Okal says they're staying in a home in southern Gaza with about 40 people. They fled there after Israel evacuated citizens from northern Gaza on October 13th. And this is a voice memo that Okal uh, recorded this morning. We've been trying to stay strong, but it hasn't been uh, easy. Um, airstrikes have intensified the last few days, and especially last night. Um, it's become constant all night uh, for and most of the day. And Uncle said he's also concerned about dwindling supplies, namely milk for his son, drinking water and fuel. They have run out of milk, and at times he says they've run out of water as well. Wow. And what are they doing to try to leave Gaza, Deb? Well, they've been in touch with various U.S. officials and agencies. Okal says the State Department informed them more than once that the Rafah border crossing into Egypt was going to open, but it never did. Here's another voice memo that Okal sent earlier this week. We've attempted to go to the crossing with Egypt three times to exit based on instructions from the State Department, uh, phone call and email communications, and uh, we've done so. And... Um, only to uh, spend eight to 10 hours at the crossing with no uh, actual movement of anyone exiting Gaza uh, and lack of uh, follow-up information from the State Department. And they also have a family friend, Boston attorney Sammy Nabolsi, who's been helping coordinate communication with the State Department, members of Congress from Massachusetts and around the country, the Medway Select Board. He's dropped flyers at events in Massachusetts. He started an online petition. And basically, Nabolsi says he's frustrated. The thing that bothers me the most, second to the fact that we haven't brought these people home, is that I've always assumed that as an American citizen, the United States would have our backs. And I don't think the government is doing that. Do we know how many Americans are in Gaza? It's estimated that between 400 and 600 Americans are there. And uh, what about the State Department? What do they say about this, Deb? Well, the State Department released a statement 10 days ago saying that it's working with all involved to try to open the border crossing, and it has informed U.S. citizens in Gaza that, quote, there may be very little notice if the crossing opens, and it may only open for a limited time. When I reached out to the State Department again today, it said it had no further updates. And Ogle says, you know, he's still trying to trust that they will be able to leave. Uh, we're trying to manage our supplies as much as possible, basically securing drinking water day to day. 
and uh, until we are able to get out uh, with help from the State Department. Um, and, and we're hopeful that we'll uh, live another day uh, to see that happen. WBUR's Deborah Becker, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Rules around abortion have shifted dramatically from state to state. That makes it hard for patients to navigate what's legal and where. Consider these numbers. 43 states ban abortion at some point. Two states ban it at six weeks. Another two states at 12 weeks. Four states at 22 weeks. Adding to the confusion, a newly published study in the Annals of Internal Medicine finds it's even difficult to know which hospitals offer this kind of reproductive care. Katie O'Riddle reports. The state of Oregon now has some of the strongest protections for reproductive rights in the country. People seeking an abortion come here from all over. Dr. Alyssa Caldwell is an obstetrician at Oregon Health and Science University. She describes one woman who recently traveled to her clinic from a state with a near total ban. We had a long conversation because we were just talking about how difficult it was for her to figure out the logistics in order to get to Oregon to be able to get the abortion that she needed. The woman had multiple children at home. The pregnancy was threatening her health. Caldwell says it's not just logistical challenges like travel and childcare. Many of her patients struggle with an even more basic question. We have patients that tell us that they've been trying to figure out where they can go for sometimes multiple weeks at a time. That's why Caldwell and her colleagues make it very clear on the hospital's website that they do offer abortion. I think we're pretty proud of it. And we've spent a lot of time just updating it um, so that people are aware. She pulls up the site and reads aloud. The OHSU Center for Women's Health provides abortions in a specialized clinic. We do not require a waiting period to begin care. Not all hospitals take this approach, according to Aaron Schwartz, a doctor and researcher from University of Pennsylvania. He reads from a Florida hospital's website listing the many reproductive services they offer. The Women's Hospital at Jackson Memorial features brand new labor and delivery unit with wireless fetal monitoring. The list includes a half dozen procedures related to pregnancy and childbirth. There is no mention of abortion. Abortion is being treated differently than other health services on these websites. This hospital, Jackson Memorial, is one of the biggest in Florida. A representative said in an email that the hospital does not provide elective abortion. Schwartz points out even that information would be helpful for patients. We specifically looked to see whether websites that didn't say they offered abortion nonetheless provided resources to tell a person where they might go to obtain abortion services. And that was pretty rare in our data. Schwartz and his colleague, Dr. Ari Friedman, also at University of Pennsylvania, got interested in this topic when they were chatting after the Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. They started wondering how patients in states with abortion bans would figure out where to go. This was one of those, uh, you go to lunch with a colleague, and by the end of the lunch, you happen to have a new research idea. <laughs> that true. That working on. That's true. Their team analyzed more than 200 hospital websites in states where the procedure is legal and found that there was no mention of abortion on nearly 80% of them. The researchers didn't look at why hospitals don't like talking about abortion. One possible reason is security. But Friedman says hospitals can offer a lot of anonymity for patients. If you're worried about protests, well, it is a lot harder to boycott every single patient walking into the doors of a hospital. Only, you know, one in 
a thousand of whom might be seeking abortion care than it is to target every single patient walking into a Planned Parenthood. Nonprofits like the group Plan C help patients figure out how to access abortion services. The website offers information for people in every state about abortion pills. Their online traffic has doubled since the Supreme Court decision in June of 2022. Angie Jean-Marie is a spokesperson for Plan C. For us, one of our values is demedicalizing abortion care. Women have been having abortions for hundreds of years, only relatively recently in hospitals. Now, in some countries, Jean-Marie points out, abortion pills are available without a prescription. Her group welcomes partnerships from hospitals, but she says they are figuring out other paths to access. I mean, we certainly have a vision of folks being able to self-manage and self-direct their abortion care. Maybe someday, she says, hospitals won't need to make their services known to those seeking safe abortions because abortion seekers won't need hospitals. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Hagopian. Marketplace is up next, 67 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com.